Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Pod. My name is Ray. I am your host. And today is Friday, July 24th. So it is time for food news, covering the stories in the culinary industry and relating to travel and food throughout the week that we've been tracking. Actually, quite a bit of food news this week, uh, quite a bit of notes on a bunch of different stories. Um, So we're going to kind of just jump right into it. So American Airlines announced this week that they will be laying off at least 25,000 frontline workers due to travel not rebounding um, from coronavirus. United, similarly, uh, a couple months ago, announced that they would be laying off like 30,000 people on October 1st as soon as basically they were eligible to make employee changes from the bailout that the airlines got as part of the agreement in restrictions from them making any changes to employee statuses for like six months. So yeah, not, uh, not great news there. Um, it actually came out today to, uh, win casino and hotels. Uh, they're going to be furloughing a bunch of employees. Again, they have like properties in like five or six States, Las Vegas, uh, Nevada, Massachusetts. I think they have a, a property and I forget what the other ones were. I think there's one, there's one in Michigan. I can't remember, but it listed out the handful of properties, but they're going to be furloughing people again. I guess they already did once, uh, and then they brought a bunch of them back. But in addition to that, uh, the Tropicana Hotel and Casino out in Vegas, they announced that they're going to be laying off 620 employees somewhere in September, October, and Circus Circus, which is another hotel casino out there on the Strip, they're going to lay off 252 employees in the same rough time frame September October the the way the article is worded though like they're talking about let me pull it up here so they're talking about like laying them off for like two weeks and then bringing them back which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense so let me let me pull it up here um yeah so going back to the wind they have uh places in Las Vegas Massachusetts Macau um okay so Tropicana, the 620 people, they're saying they're going to start laying them off on October 15th over a 14-day period. Um, They filed a Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act with the Nevada Department of Employment on July 3rd. So they've actually known about this for a couple weeks, and it's just coming out now. Uh, Circus Circus, which is apparently owned by some billionaire named Phil Ruffin. I guess he bought the property from MGM who used to own it. I guess he bought it last year. He, let's see, uh, just 252 layoffs starting September 1st for them. Um, So, yeah, nothing good coming out of Vegas. And a lot of those casinos were claiming that they, you know, they didn't have enough cash to make it through, you know, all this stuff. Um, Some of them were still painting employees during the coronavirus stuff when they were closed, uh, you know, and they threw out a whole bunch of numbers. I think like, who was it? Somebody said like that it cost the company like $250 million to continue to pay them. I don't know. Let me see if that was it. Was that Wynn or was that? Yeah, I think it was Wynn who came out and said during their first like furloughing, yeah, it cost the company nearly $250 million, which that number doesn't seem right. I mean, they have like 30,000 employees apparently, but 
even if all 30,000 employees are making like a hundred grand, that doesn't get you to the 250 number. And I'm just saying like that would be like average salary under grand. So mm, numbers seem a little shady, but anyways, there's more people that are going to be hitting the uh, unemployment line and the job market apparently out in Vegas. Um, Staying with hotels, though, Marriott and Hyatt, they both came out and said anyone uh, that's indoors at one of their properties is required to wear a mask, except for basically the only exceptions are when you're in your room or seated at a, a restaurant within one of their properties. Nothing said anything about like pools or anything like that, which I thought was kind of weird. So if you're in a pool, you don't have to wear a mask or the pool's not open. Um, I just thought of that initially and it didn't really say. So I guess we'll wait and see if they anything else comes out about that. McDonald's, uh, they came out today and said starting Oct- uh, actually starting August 1st, uh, all customers will be required to wear a mask in their stores. Um, not You don't have to wear it in the drive-thru, but just when you're entering the store. If uh, customers don't have a mask, they will provide one to anyone that needs one. So, I, I mean, basically just, you know, it's going to be every major business is going to adopt the mask thing and the mask mandate. And you know, pretty much, I mean, I got to think like half the states have mask mandates now. I mean, we have it throughout Ohio that changed this week. So basically starting yesterday at six o'clock, uh, Thursday at six, you had to start wearing a mask, uh, regardless of whether you're inside or outside, um, is kind of the rule. I did violate that order today. I stepped outside with going on a dog walk and did not wear a mask, but I also didn't encounter anybody. So I think I'm okay, but, but otherwise wearing a mask, uh, you know, whenever is required, whenever is needed, grocery stores, you know, all that stuff. Um, there's some, there's a lot of debate like on how effective it is. And now there's a thing about like any mask that has like one of the ventilators, uh, those don't work. And some counties are not allowing people to wear those. And there's a whole thing. Part of me, part of me believes that like there is like one or two groups behind the scenes that are pulling the strings on like, they produce a bunch of these masks and it's all about making some extra money. And I'm sure that article will come out like six months from now. They'll be like, this company started making masks and is now, you know, makes $5 billion annually or something. But yeah, I mean, it feels the mask mandate feels like slight overkill, but it's just because there's a lot of people that don't want to do it. Just, it's not that big of a deal. Just, just wear the mask. It makes everybody feel better. Even if you don't believe in it, I, I mean, I've seen stuff where the science says it's super effective. I've seen stuff where depending on the material, it's not really effective. I don't really know what to make of it, but, um, yeah, I mean, you only have to wear, you know, even if you're in the grocery store for like an hour, it's like not that big of a deal. Just wear it for an hour. You just have to, you have to find one that fits nice. And luckily I have one that's reusable and rewashable and, and it actually fits pretty good. Um, we, I mean, probably we have, we bought like two or three like different sets. So yeah, you just kind of have to suck it up and, and find one that, uh, that fits. And then it's not really that bad. So, um, yeah, there was a mask, like an anti-mask protest here, like last week at the state house, I think just, uh, it was like 90 degrees outside. It's like, dude, you guys are really that upset about having to wear a mask. Like you're going to protest all day, 90 degree heat and like your body armor and like your, your camo gear. With walking around with your AR-15s, like 
I don't know. I just got better things to do with my Saturday than do that. But um, to each their own, right to protest. It's part of the amendments, so whatever. Moving on, though, getting out of the mask stuff because I'm sure you are tired of hearing about it, as am I. Uh, Instacart. So they're that, uh, that company that you can hire somebody to basically do your grocery shopping for you and then you, know, you just tip them and pay them. Um, they are suing a company called Corner Shop. And this company, Corner Shop, is majority owned by Uber. Uh, they're actually, I guess, one of the largest uh, del- grocery delivery services in Latin America. And Instacart's suing them for intellectual property theft, alleging that corner shops stole product images, descriptions, and pricing data from them. Um, Uber, I guess, bought them last year for an undisclosed uh, amount. So it's just Uber investing more in kind of the ride, not even the ride sharing business, just like the grocery delivery business, the food delivery business. Um, they kind of pivoted towards that. I don't, I don't know if Uber's still doing their self-driving car stuff. Uh, I mean, they were, but then they like had that guy get killed in the crosswalk or whatever, or maybe it was a woman. But it's somewhere out in Arizona, I think. And I think they had an incident in Pittsburgh, too. So I don't remember if they're still doing that. But that's kind of the latest news out of the grocery. Everybody's starting to get all ticked off at each other and you're going to see some lawsuits and stuff. There's only a handful of companies that do the grocery delivery stuff. So it's going to be a real competitive market. Just people don't want to do it. I don't personally, I don't really like going to the grocery store. I didn't before the coronavirus. I mean, it'd be fine if like, you know, you're playing a podcast, listening to music on headphones or whatever, and know exactly what you got to get and go in, you know where it is. Like it's a store you're familiar with. You can go in, get out right away. But the whole just like wandering up and down the aisles because you can only go one way. And then like if you're browsing for something, like I don't like doing it. It's it's gotten better. Um, there's a couple stores that do it real well. So it's not that big of a deal, you know, and you just kind of mentally prepare yourself before going like, all right, this is going to this is gonna suck. But um, it's not that bad, but it's still not something I really want to spend, you know, an hour, hour and a half doing. Um, so we, we probably go like once every three weeks or so, unless there's something that we absolutely need for cooking something or, or whatever, or, you know, you need milk for coffee and it went bad or something like that. But yeah, uh, I'm not to the point where I'm going to pay somebody to do my grocery shopping for me, but uh, I don't enjoy it. So I understand why people use the service. Um, next story up, uh, according to a Buzzfeed news report, I guess the names, last four digits of credit cards, addresses, and order histories from over 250,000 Instacart accounts are currently being sold in dark web stores. The dark web is to explain this. The easiest way to explain it is the internet that we use for browsing, you know, Yahoo news or going to Facebook. That's, that's the internet. That's just the web, and it it makes up a real small percentage of actually what, like, the overall internet is. The rest of it is the dark web where you need, you know, you need to be running, like, VPNs and and stuff like that. Um, But that's where, you know, people are trading, you know, Bitcoin for drugs, and they're mailing them to, you know, people's houses and and all that stuff. I mean, if you look into the uh, Silk Road story, about this guy who like started basically this online 
store in the dark web where, you know, it was an online marketplace essentially and people would go buy and sell drugs of different, you know, quantities and caliber and all that stuff, whether it was heroin, cocaine, like all that stuff. But then there was also like you could hire hitmen on there too. And that's kind of how he got busted. He was trying to like hire a hitman and wound up being an undercover FBI agent. And they wound up grabbing him at like a library. But then there's a whole thing where, uh, I think it's like Robert Ulrich is the guy's name. Uh, it was kind of the founder of it, but then there's a whole thing like that guy's not really the real guy who set everything up and he's just like the fall guy. And it's pretty interesting if you got like a half hour to just kind of half hour to an hour to just kind of go down the Silk Road uh, story thing. That's a couple years old, but that's kind of everybody's first exposure to like what the dark web actually is was kind of through that when they arrested that guy. So Instacart, uh, they came out and said that they haven't had a data breach on their end, which is probably bullshit. And that this is all just a coincidence. And that basically people were, they're getting all this information from people responding to like phishing emails saying like, you need to reset your account password or all this stuff. I mean, people are stupid and people do click on that stuff, but 250,000 accounts all through just a basic phishing scam. I don't know. I I mean, I I don't know. I want to give people more credit than that, but I mean, what I think it's currently under debate whether Americans the average American reads at a fourth grade or a sixth grade level. So yeah, maybe they are, maybe they are that gullible. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I wouldn't use Instacart. I know somebody who does. He's just like that shit. That sucks. Hopefully it's not one of my accounts where I mean, worst case scenario. If you have a good credit card, you know, you catch it. If you pay attention to your credit card, you know, log in online once every couple of days, like you'll catch it. You can dispute it. And if you have a good credit card company, like I have Chase and they, they've always handled that stuff quick and, and easily. It's not really a hassle. You can do it all through their portal. You don't even have to call somebody half the time. So, um, yeah, it's all been real easy for, for any time that I've had to do that. And, you know, I put all, basically all our purchases on a credit card. So mainly just because like, it's a pain in the ass if you get fraud on your debit card. And so you might as well just use a debit card. You're kind of protected a little bit. You got kind of this extra layer of of stuff needing to pass through. And um, it's always worked for me. I mean, that's what I recommend everybody do. I know people are like scared of like credit card fraud, but I'm more scared of debit card fraud, honestly. Because then it's like if they get your debit card number, then they have access to like everything else. And it's just like, oof. But... Yeah, I, I wouldn't use Instacart. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but to each their own on that. Wendy's, uh, kind of a local story, but I mean, they're a national chain. So they launched a loyalty program uh, this week. I guess it's been rumored for a while. I don't really understand the terms of the loyalty program. So basically they outlined it as it gives members $10, for every, 10 points for every $1 spent on food. Um, they will have promotions occasionally that offer bonuses, some items, uh, customers can get like double points in their first order, I guess, with the launch of the program, but there was no word on how long that double point situation lasts. Points are tracked through the Wendy's app. Mobile orders do qualify for points. Uh, I guess for in-person and drive-through orders, there's a 
QR code in the app that has to be scanned in order for you to get your points. Gift card and third-party delivery apps are not eligible for points, which I don't... The gift card thing, sure, but I don't understand how they're going to be able to check third-party delivery apps because third-party delivery apps, you place your order and somebody goes to that place and orders it for you, stands there, waits, collects it, and then drives it over to you. So as long as they have the Wendy's app, they could just scan it and get the points themselves. I I don't know how much of an incentive that is. I guess you'd have to eat a decent amount of Wendy's, but you could be eating free Wendy's pretty much all the time, I guess, if you were delivering a lot of Wendy's, but I don't know. Um, Yeah, there's there's no info either on how many points you needed to redeem for free food. So, like, do you need 50 points for, like, a hamburger or, like, what's – what's the value of a point kind of thing they didn't come out with that either so uh that's too much work for me i mean i try not to eat fast food but in the event that we do i mean it would wendy's would be one of the choices but i'm not having somebody scan an app so i can get like 10 points and then if once i make like 10 trips there i have enough points for a free fry like I'm, i'm just not doing that that's just a pain in the ass. Just give me my food and make sure the order's correct so I can leave. Next story, Trader Joe's. Uh, you probably heard about this. So they are removing uh, all the products that are named, you know, that have ethnic names. So Trader Jose's was what they were using for a lot of Mexican and Latin American affiliated products. And Trader Ming's is what they were using for a lot of Asian and Chinese products. Um people got uh, really upset with those names and then called out the company for, you know, racism. So Trader Joe's has respondents that they are going to re- change the label and remove all those products from the store shelves. Um, so, I mean, that's a, that's a good start, I guess. I, I'm not, I don't, I mean, I think that's kind of the end. Like they get rid of the label and that's it. I don't, there hasn't been any like boycotting of Trader Joe's as far as I know. I haven't seen anything. Um, that was just kind of like a story that like popped up and then the company came out and was like, yeah, we're going to fix that. And then that's pretty much the end. So, uh, today restaurant workers in Dallas, Denver, Austin, Chicago, and Las Vegas, uh, were doing a planned day of action protest, uh, essentially to demand better working conditions for employees, within the restaurant industry and for Congress to extend the $600 enhanced unemployment bonus. So it's, I mean, I think it's like a lot of workers that, you know, if they believe in the protest and everything, they just wouldn't report to work that day. If, if their restaurant was open, um, I'm not sure if there's actual like physical protests, like if they're protesting at, uh, you know, each city's, you know, government, house or, or or what there wasn't any information on that i don't know how effective this is going to be uh, most cities don't have a whole lot of restaurants open anyways so i'm not i mean everybody has right to protest i'm just i don't i don't see the end game here like congress is not going to just extend the 600 dollars unemployment bonus because restaurant workers in six cities decided that they didn't want to show up on a friday like that's not going to move the needle for any of those people in Congress. They don't care. Um, yeah, I just I, and I also don't know like how many restaurants are actually open in those markets too as well. Like, is there such a demand that by you know however many workers 
decide to, you know, not show up today, does it affect operations that much? I just, I just don't know if it's going to do enough. Um, but I guess we'll, you know, wait and see what the, what the results are from it. Since April, uh, eight different restaurant chains have filed for either chapter seven or chapter 11 bankruptcy. Chapter seven is no restructuring or selling off assets to pay creditors, uh, or, you know, creditors, essentially people that are owed money. Chapter 11 is restructuring of the company's finances to set up a payment plan for its creditors while still keeping the business alive and, and still operating. So seven is like, we're going out of business. We can't pay anybody. We can't restructure like we're dead. 11 is we're in trouble. We need to be able to rework our finances. We'll set up payment plans with all the people that we owe. And um, yeah, after a, hopefully a, a couple years or if we get a sizable investment from somebody or somebody wants to buy into the company, you know, we can pay people back and get back to operating uh, in the black instead of the red. So out of those companies, uh, chapter 11s, which are, I guess, kind of the, the good ones, if you want to call it that, uh, the companies that have filed are first or food first global restaurants, which is Bravo and Brio. Um, there's, I forget how many there are across the nation. Some guy bought them like a couple months ago and we have what we have a Brio in Easton. And I think we have like a Bravo up in Polaris. And then I know there's some in Cincinnati too as well. But uh, yeah, that, that's a chain like Italian restaurant. It's pretty bland Italian. It's not very impressive. Um, decent spot to get like a drink or two if you're in Easton because they have like a decent kind of outdoor patio, patio area. But um, other than that, wouldn't really recommend it. Uh, bamboo sushi, which is basically just bamboo sushi and quick fish. We don't have uh, any of those. It's kind of like a West Coast, uh, California, Oregon, Seattle um, concept there. Uh, Liquotiden pain, which I'm assuming is a, some sort of bakery chain, bread chain. I'm not, I've never heard of them. Um, and then NPC international, which is the franchisee arm of pizza hut and Wendy's. And I guess that, uh, that entails like 1600 locations across the U S. So that's not Wendy's as a whole, that's people that are like, I want to open a Wendy's here. And they paid the franchise fee. Same with pizza hut. Uh, and I believe that there was no word on whether that 1600 number included like the 1200 pizza hut locations that are closing because the, the biggest franchisee of pizza hut went bankrupt. I'm assuming that number is. So really it's like 400 Wendy's franchises apparently. Um, but I have to double check on that. But Chapter sevens are two J's, never heard of. Soup Plantation, name rings a bell, but I, I can't really figure out why or where. I feel like that's something I might have seen in like an airport. Chuck E. Cheese, which we reported on uh, last week or the week before, and then something called Fig and Olive, which I've never heard. Uh, Steak and Shake is kind of the next one that's currently at risk of defaulting, kind of the next name that's going to join the list. And that's been rumored for a while. I guess they just have uh, they have too much debt. Um, on their books from expansion. So they're going to be seeing a bit. I don't know if Steak and Shake is going to be a Chapter 7 or Chapter 11, though, so we'll just have to kind of wait to find out on that. And finally, wrapping up kind of the global news. Uh, so this one's out of Toronto. 
Brothers, an award-winning restaurant there. It's actually been featured in the New York Times a couple times, and it was a mainstay on Canada's 100 best restaurants list. They announced that they will be permanently closing due to coronavirus. Um, basically, their setup is it's just too small. It's too intimate of a space. There's no way that they could rework it uh, to open in a COVID-19 world, so they decided to just shut it down permanently. And that's kind of all the top level and global stories for the week. So a lot of big companies kind of doing um, some things, whether it's restructuring or layoffs or stuff kind of coming down the pike here. Um, moving over to just kind of national U.S. news. So we'll just go city by city here. We'll start out in uh, or state by state, I should say. We'll start out in California. Uh, we're going to start out in San Francisco here. Phil's Coffee, which I've never been to, I don't believe I've ever had, they said that they're going to lay off 181 workers, and they did, and they did by email, apparently. Uh, It's a San Francisco-based coffee chain, 59 locations in Southern California, Illinois, and along the East Coast, but never really said where. Uh, I guess employees were critical of the chain in response to PPE and safety protocols for workers during the pandemic. And also the company stands on the Black Lives Matter movement uh, over the past two months or so. So I guess some of the layoffs people are insinuating that are kind of a lot of the people that were laid off were critical of the company. And then there was just a handful of others. Um, Tough to prove, but, you know, just another company laying people off apparently. Which, unfortunately, is probably going to be a frequent topic on this weekly podcast because things are just a slow go and they're just slowly just getting worse and companies are going to start restructuring. And, you know, most companies, their biggest expense is workforce, you know, health insurance, paying people wages, um, keeping uh, cash on hand to cover, you know, any PTO balances, anything like that too. So, I saw a Yelp article come out the other day, and so they had kind of an accounting of some restaurant closures. So from March 1st to July 10th, uh, they estimate that 369 restaurants in the San Francisco, Oakland, and Hayward metropolitan area, essentially the Bay Area, have uh, closed either due, either temporarily or permanently just due to coronavirus. Um, so that's, you're looking at like a, three and a half month span and you're looking at over 350 restaurants. So you're looking at like a restaurant a day essentially is closing in the Bay area is really what that says. And that's kind of an alarming number. Um, but I think it's only going to increase as we're going to keep going through food news here, but there's a lot of stories about people just coming up on, on deadlines on bills and stuff and they just can't make it. So Staying in San Francisco, the Pioneer, which was the only fishing boat on uh, San Francisco's Fisherman Wharf that was allowed to sell fish. They sold halibut, black cod, rockfish, um, basically dockside. Uh, The port is forcing them to leave and has halted their uh, license that allows them to do retail sales. I guess uh, they had an agreement with Skomas, a 54-year-old seafood restaurant, and they were I guess Skoma's leases part of the pier and then they had a handshake deal with the pioneer where they could, um, 
you know, sell fish dockside as long as they abided by a few rules, which were, um, what the, where is it? Uh, basically, you know, making sure they wash down the, the space, you know, blood, fish guts, anything like that. Finish sales by 11 a.m. and then keep their customers out of the restaurant parking lot. Um, part of it, too, is the restaurant wants to use that space for outdoor dining. So they've set up tables in the space, too, as well. Um, I guess the guy that owns uh, the Pioneer, the fishing boat, he's kind of got another location lined up. Um, he didn't really specify where, but he said it'd be a little bit better situation for for people that would like to come and, and buy fish and everything. So uh, it's just, you know, if a restaurant's trying to survive, it's got to use as much space as it can. And if it's only allowed to do outdoor dining, you know, it needs that space. And if they're the ones that are paying for it, uh, I, I can't really blame them. It sounds like everybody's going to win out of the situation. The pioneer will find a, a new, ho- a new home and, um, and everything will work out. Uh, the San Francisco ferry buildings has been a weird story. So earlier this week, it got reclassified as an indoor mall by the city and it was forced to close, but anything that had a exterior entrance could continue to do takeout and use the outdoor seating. Um, at the ferry building if they didn't they could still offer curbside pickup but then some of the shops still had to close um, just because they weren't doing food that were there and then i think today it came out and it got reclassified as a terminal building because of the ferries so everything's allowed to reopen again so they were only closed for like a day or two um, but apparently anything that's in the ferry building is reopened and can operate at, at full, you know, staff, full capacity, um, regardless of their designation, if they're retail or whatever, because it's been reclassified from a mall to a, to a terminal building. And which is, I guess, like basically an essential service because of the ferry that, that runs over to like Sausalito and stuff like that leaves out of there. So, um, yeah, so that kind of worked itself out over the past couple of days, but that's just like the weird shit that's going on is just, you, you have these stories and so one day and then the next day it just changes. It's super strange, but, uh, headed down, uh, down South. So last week talked about the stuff with the squirrel and moldy jam and everything. So she had another restaurant, uh, that she opened in partnership with Gabriella Camara, who's like a pretty well-known chef in Mexico. Uh, and restaurant tour. Uh, but Gabriella actually withdrew from their partnership this week, this past week here, uh, at a restaurant Onda. Basically they opened the restaurant in the proper hotel in Santa Monica last year in October. And she didn't really specifically address why she was leaving the partnership, but it's pretty much assumed that it's because of the you know the scandal involving the moldy jam and not giving employees proper qu- credit on recipes and and things like that um, at Squirrel so so it's just kind of more stuff bleeding into other businesses for for Coslo there the the chef owner of Squirrel um, you know I don't really have any additional thoughts on it I think Coslo's a little bit of a shady person um, I will say that I think. Chang, David Chang needs to kind of maybe take a step back and, you know, take a look at the people that he's kind of 
not just surrounding himself with, but also promoting. You know, he's had some people on the podcast, like he had her on the podcast and he had like Jessica Largi on the podcast and Jessica Largi basically, um, she came off a little arrogant in the interview. She's basically trying to take credit for like why Manresa got awarded Michelin stars and like it was all because of her, um, which is not the case, obviously. I mean, David Kinch is a, a world-class chef there, but um, Largi then went and opened like her own place in LA and then like three months later it closed and like she was kicked out of it and she hasn't popped up since. So like that's another one where it's kind of a weird person. And then, you know, the whole uh, Peter Meehan thing and he tried to distance himself from that. And, you know, the restaurant industry is where a lot of people who didn't have a path, originally a lot of people didn't have a path to anything else. Like that's kind of where they found ground to stand on, you know, is the island of misfit toys essentially. And then food kind of started becoming a big thing. And now it's like, a. then you had the rise of like the celebrity chef, which you had your Batalis and your Wolfgang Pucks and Emeril and, and these people. And then it kind of branched off into almost like the artisan field and like who's doing cool stuff over here and doing really unique stuff. And, but you still have that, you know, it's still an open opportunity. And a lot of people that wind up in the industry, you know, have a, maybe a checkered past or, or something like that. So you do have all these different, you know, characters and cast of characters that pop up with, you know, these, you know, these just things in their, in their background that never, they never changed or anything like that. And, and so I think you see a lot of that stuff coming to light. It's always been there. It's not really new developments. Like a lot of these people are who they are and it's just coming to light because the world's shining a light on a lot of this stuff, mainly out of boredom because everybody's bored and just didn't have anything to do, but you know, social media where everything's kind of more instant too as well. But, um, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of people that Chang has, you know, mentioned by name and kind of propped up who recently have, have started having issues with how they treat other people and their, you know, kind of character and everything. And I like David Chang, you know, but he does have his own checkered past of throwing plates and shit across the kitchen. I mean, granted, that's an 04. It's well-documented. He's come out and said that, you know, that's obviously stuff he shouldn't do. And and he's definitely changed his, you know, behavior and everything too as well. But yeah, for somebody who's trying to create, you know, a media company and, you know, still has a hand in the, the Momofuku restaurant empire, you know, which he started, even though he's not, you know, he has a CEO in place and everything like that. Yeah, he might just want like a PR person to kind of, pop up and be like, Hey man, just let's just take a look at like who we're surrounding ourselves with just for brand awareness purposes or something. And, and maybe just take a hard look at that. Um, cause more and more, you know, people pop up and it's like, Oh yeah, I remember that person's name from David Chang and Chang's podcast and stuff. So, um, yeah, just kind of food for thought on that one, but I don't really have any more thoughts on, on Coslo. I mean, she's just, you know, I think I used all that last last week. Um, so uh, this restaurant east of Sacramento called Apple Bistro. Uh, I, it's called Plackerville, which I've heard of, but I don't know exactly where it is on the map. Um, 
that restaurant's facing backlash. They're refusing uh, service to customers wearing face masks. I guess uh, they had a sign posted on the front door saying oxygen deprivation masks are not required here. Uh, Once the story kind of became public throughout the week, like they came out and said they're denying they did it at all. They never had a sign, Um, but they are facing a possible loss of license from, I'm assuming the state um, is the one who's going to pull the license there, but no word on, on whether that has actually been done or, or anything like that. Um, so yeah, one of the, you hear one of these stories kind of once every couple of weeks about some restaurant that's like, you know, we don't require a mask here. And if you have a mask, we're, you know, there's that place out in DC that kind of did the same thing. So, um, just something you kind of hear about every couple of weeks. And it's just the mask debate, um, just in a different form, essentially. Uh, Korean American Diner Arts Cafe uh, is closing after 30 years. Uh, this is in the Bay Area too, as well. Basically, uh, the re- the owners are retiring. Um, you know, I guess they immigrated to the U.S. in the 80s, and and then they bought this like uh, 12 seat counter diner in 1989. I've been running it ever since, and just uh, they're at the point where they can retire. So. That's a, I mean, it's another closure. People will probably lump it into the coronavirus stats, but um, it's more of a closure for kind of the right reasons that they're just done and, and don't have anybody take it over um, or anybody that wants to take it over. Uh, over in LA, so Bill Elwell, who's the owner of Bill's Burgers in LA, uh, I guess he recently put up uh, four sale signs in the restaurant. Um, he's owned this burger joint since 1965. Like he's, the guy behind the grill flipping burgers. The article said like to, it tried to claim that like he's never taken a day off. Like he's flipped burgers every day since 1965. That's not accurate. Like that's a great whimsical sentence to throw in there, but there's no way that that's accurate. So, but anyways, uh, he's in his nineties. Um, but I guess the signs go up and come down every once in a while. Nobody at the restaurant would, you know, comment on the plans. They're just like, Bill's going to do what he's going to do. And I guess last year, because there's like a core following for the restaurant, and um, he told kind of the diehard fans, I don't know if there was some sort of gathering or if he told them through an interview or what, it, it didn't really say, but that he just, you know, it doesn't have anything else going on, so he'd like to cook for as long as, long as he can, you know, that he's physically able to. He's just like, what else am I going to do? Um, so yeah, I mean, it sounds like a cool place. It's just like old school burger joint, probably one that like, I imagine you have to pay cash at, um, kind of a roadside burger joint apparently, which you'd, you know, see in movies and kind of like the nineties, early nineties and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I definitely check it out if I was in LA, if I, if I get out there and you know, it's still open, definitely sounds like a place worth the drive just for like the nostalgia factor. Another closure, uh, It's Tops Coffee Shop. Uh, that is closed after 85 years. That's in the Bay Area, too, as well. Um, and I think that's it for closures in kind of California. Um, yeah, and then just kind of two other things of note. So Fish and Bird Susaka is a kaya. It's over in the East Bay. I guess they opened a couple months before the shelter-in-place orders came down. They have started doing outdoor um, dining and they have transitioned uh, their menu outside. So they're going to serve 
they specialize in a, in a Japanese charcoal grill where you cook your meat and seafood over it. And um, yeah, they're moving that outside. So it's a tabletop grill. Um, basically, they're going to be on the sidewalk dining area that they're creating. And um, you can go and eat some expensive uh, yanakiku, basically, um, which is just the, the method of preparation there. Um, traditionally, I guess they're indoor, you know, restaurants, that style of dining, but with the restriction, everything, they're just kind of being creative. Um, and I guess you can call ahead because the coals take like 45 minutes to heat up so you can cook stuff over them. And I guess you can call ahead and the restaurant will start heating it for you prior to your arrival. I'm assuming that, um, at least I would hope that they would require some sort of, you know, reservation type payment or something if they're going to start heating up coals and that way people don't no show on them but um so yeah some positive news somebody just kind of pivoting uh trying to keep everything going and then uh, the last story out of the bay area Oli's waffle shop which is a 100 year old restaurant in alameda which is kind of like the oakland area alameda county there um it came out, uh, there was an article about them, but they haven't laid off anyone since the start of the pandemic. Uh, the owners have spent over 400000 of their own money, including selling their retirement home uh, to basically keep all of their 41 employees working. Uh, they've lost 85% of their revenue and burned through their federal stimulus loan in about two months. But they refused to lay anybody off. They said it, it's you know, it wouldn't be fair if they were laying people off, but still had, you know, this nest egg and retirement home over here and we're asking people to come in and, and risk getting coronavirus to work and still make the restaurant money and make them money. And I understand that, that thought sentiment, but oof, putting, putting 400 grand on the line. Um, I mean, kudos to them for, you know, taking care of their employees. So if you're in, the Bay Area, go get breakfast there or something. They're open for takeout and outdoor dining. You know, try and support them. They're one of the few businesses that are that are doing something right. Um, you know, and taking care of their employees, where a lot of business are are either shutting down or have laid. You know, and it depends on what avenue is available to you. You know, some places had to lay people off because they would get more on unemployment than if they continued working at the restaurant. So. Um, but yeah, so I mean, that's that's a cool story that came out um, that I thought was was worth mentioning. Shifting over to New York City, outdoor dining uh, has been extended to October 31st. I guess it was previously set to expire on Labor Day. But all restaurants offering outdoor dining must offer a sit-down experience, I guess, based on the guidelines. So they can't, people can't be like standing around or whatever. They have to be seated at a table. Uh, Governor Cuomo announced a three strike policy this week for restaurants. Um, and basically if you get three strikes, you're closed. The mandates in preparation of a potential second wave of coronavirus cases expected to, to hit the state, the city, uh, any establishment that receives three violations will be closed. Egregious violators could lose their liquor license. Uh, additionally, implementing a new statewide rule that restaurants and bars can only serve alcohol to people who are ordering and eating food at the establishment. Um, it came out to, I think yesterday that he was basically saying like chicken wings don't count and the lowest level of food an establishment can serve is sandwiches. 
Bar Brick basically had its, uh, it's a, just a, I've never heard of it, but it's just a bar in, in New York City somewhere. It had its outdoor dining provision stripped for at least a week after failing to enforce social distancing measures last week. So they are serious about it. I mean, they are sending people around. Um, I get it on one hand, but it's like people need to start making money too. And, you know, how long do you want people to stay closed? Like people are going to start losing everything, you know, especially if they put up personal personal financing or, or anything like that to open a restaurant. I don't know. I don't know how some of these places are going to survive. And I mean, it's, it's been a slow bleed so far. It's, you know, this establishment of 80 years is closing. This one's a hundred. And we have a few more uh, coming up here too, later in the podcast that I'll be name dropping too, as well to announce that they're closing. But some of the governors too, just seem a little like not power hungry is not the right word, but they are definitely feeling themselves with, you know, being able to dictate some rules and keep stuff closed. And, you know, I, I really like Gavin Newsom out in California. Uh, he's somebody that I was hoping was actually going to run for president and he didn't, uh, which I kind of get, you know, um, I think part of his logic is maybe he'd run in 2024 you know, because then he would have be like seven, seven years as governor or whatever. And I think you can only do eight. Um, and who knows? Maybe or maybe he was. I don't know the the Senate or House of Representatives situation out there in the state. So I don't know if somebody was like getting to the age of retiring and he he would run and take over that person's seat and just be in Congress. I'm not sure what kind of his you know his political aspirations are, but he did kind of always seemed like he pops up on Bill Marsha every once in a while. And he always did seem like somebody who was interested in pursuing a, a run for president. Um, and I really like him, but it does seem, you know, yeah, you have a lot of cases and you're trying to curb the, the spread of the virus, but you know, you do have to figure out how people can start making money again. Like you're talking, we're coming up on six months of some of these places being shut down and you know, you can't just live off unemployment forever. You can't stay inside forever. At some point you do have to start taking a little calculated risk. And I feel like that just that path for places and people has not really been, been kind of cut. It hasn't been drawn out. And um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's just a lot of people that are going to be going to be hurting. It's going to get, it's going to, it's going to get bad. <laughs> just everything I see and read, I'm like, ugh, this is like, especially like this fall. Like once the airlines start laying people off and like the hotels do as soon as they're eligible with all that bailout money they got, it's going to get, it's going to get bad, man. I don't know. That's pessimistic Bray for you on today's episode. <laughs> but um, staying in New York, uh, Danny Myers Union Square Hospitality Group. Um, they have basically abandoned their no tipping policy just due to concerns with employees and not getting paid enough. And then, you know, things getting back to normal for restaurants. So um, he was kind of one of the people at the forefront of changing the model to, to no tipping. So paying workers a higher wage, maybe increasing prices of dishes, you know, one or two bucks. 
or whatever to basically incorporate whatever people would tip the percentage into the meal. Um, and I do like that aspect. I, I, I would personally prefer to go to a restaurant, pay in advance is great, especially like on talk when you go to a restaurant, if you can, and you have to make a reservation. Um, and just it's built in and it's, you know, they build in their, their 18 or 20% service fee and it's there and, and they can take care of their workers and they know exactly how much they're getting based on all the, the reservations. The employees know how much they're going to make too as well. And, and I think it's just a better model, but for whatever reason, like the U S is just like one of these countries that like tipping is a line in the sand that we refuse to cross, but he was kind of able to do it. I mean, it was controversial when he did it, but basically, so what he's going to do is all tips, uh, you know, at, at the establishments, those will still go to the front of the house staffers and they have to based on a federal law, apparently that, uh, tips cannot be shared between servers and kitchen staff. I guess that's a law in the book. So he's going to try and get that changed. Um, but what he's going to do for the kitchen staffers, I guess they're going to get a 25% pay increase. And then he's also going to institute a restaurant revenue profit sharing type system to make up kind of the difference that way they're on the same footing as, as the servers, since everybody's kind of, you know, in the situation together and whatnot with being exposed to coronavirus potentially. So, which I thought was, you know, good on him. I mean, he's, he's a smart dude. You know, I know some people want to crush him for a few things here and, um, he's a very smart guy when it comes to figuring out how to open a restaurant concept in multiple locations quickly and efficiently. And, you know, I think he's got the right idea. I mean, you know, just proves that he's looking out for his workers first, you know, um, he could just shut down the restaurants. He, he could have done a lot of different things and, and restructuring the salary system is definitely not something that most places are going to do. So, uh, Hillary Gregg, who was, I guess, a a famous line cook, I guess he was known as quote unquote, the walking cookbook. Um, I guess he was a, a line cook at the quilted giraffe for years. Uh, the quilted giraffe is kind of this, uh, it's a really innovative restaurant back in like kind of the late eighties, early nineties. Um, David Kinch worked there. Uh, he wasn't the executive chef, but I mean, he did work there for a couple years um, so if you go to the spoon mob website, click on Manresa, top part is a bio on David Kinch and it's in there, um, about his experience and why it was important and everything. But Hillary Gregg, um, you know, I guess he was a, kind of a institution of his own there at the restaurant. He, uh, passed away last week on Friday. Uh, unfortunately it was due to complications from coronavirus. I guess he was 73, um, so that was kind of a, a big news update. There's been a couple people in the industry. There was the one, um, there was, a, I forget his name. I, I believe he was like an Indian, Indian chef, Indian guy. Um, he passed away like early on, uh, cause of coronavirus. He was in like his fifties. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but there's been a couple, um, well-known people within the, in, within the industry. Um, I don't really know anything about Hillary Gregg, but, um, from the article, it sounds like, uh, a lot of people were kind of influenced by him, especially if they worked at the, the quilted giraffe at some point while he was there. So David, uh, David Bully, 
who a lot of different chefs that have opened restaurants have passed through his establishment. I mean, his famous one was just, you know, as eponymous, uh, Bully was the name of his restaurant in New York. That was kind of his famous one. Um, he announced that he's closing his Flatiron uh, location, Bully at Home is the name of the restaurant. I guess it's a kind of a tasting menu restaurant, but it's also an all-in-one space. It had a bakery and a test kitchen and everything. It's been closed since the start of the pandemic in March, but he announced that he will be permanently closing it. It was his last restaurant in New York. Um, he did say that he would be looking to, you know, to open a new restaurant some point in the future, just kind of once coronavirus settles down and and people can get a feel for, you know, what the environment's going to be like. Uh, I'm sure there will be a plethora of spots available that he can get into. I'm sure it, a lot of it all had to do with, you know, lease and, and everything too as well. West Village restaurant Banty Rooster uh, is going to be closing on August 22nd, less than a year after opening. They couldn't come to a new agreement with uh, rent with their landlord. Uh, the restaurant itself showcases Southwestern cuisine. Um, the plan is to reopen somewhere else in the city sometime in the future when things kind of get a little bit better as well. Uh, I know it was like a highly anticipated restaurant opening in New York. Banty Rooster was and based on the photos and everything like it looks like a really good restaurant so it's just kind of they opened um they got the short end of the stick and just opened at the wrong time and you know they're not gonna be able to make it uh donut plant which is kind of this um it's like a vegan donut place we went to it in New York City we went to one of them uh they have temporarily closed all seven of their New York City locations due to financial fallout from coronavirus. All those locations are going to be closed at least through the end of August, I guess. Just mounting fixed costs like rent, decline in, uh, decline in customers and business. You know, they just don't have the finance to make it. They ran out of their PPP loan. Um, I guess the uh, the owner who owns all seven locations said he had to lay off all the employees that he rehired in May when he was able to reopen. Um, and his first location started back in uh, 1994. So like I said, we went to it once. They're very heavy donuts. Um, they're supposed to be kind of like, you know, not, not all the donuts have like dairy in them. You know, I think some are gluten free kind of deal. Um, they're okay. I, I don't think I would ever go back. I do remember them being very like dense. Like all of them were very like, oof. Um, I know it was a, I think Katie found it. It was like our first New York trip when we were going is when we went. So it's like three years ago or so, three, four years ago. Um, moving on, uh, Ellen's Stardust Diner. So it's a diner staple in the theater district has been there since 1987. I guess they owe 618,000 in unpaid rent and the landlord will assume position or uh, possession, sorry, of the restaurant itself. If he's not paid in full by August 7th, my guess is that he's not going to get paid a check for 618 grand by August 7th. Uh, the diner hasn't been open at all during the pandemic. All 200 employees were laid off at the, the, the start of the pandemic too, as well. So, um, pretty much you can mark that 
that institution as closed. There's just no way that somebody's going to cut a $600,000 check for the diner. So the owners are basically just like giving it up. Um, which, yeah, if they're set up right and, you know, they don't have any personal liability for the unpaid rent and the landlord didn't want to work with them and they're like, we can't pay and they just decide not to pay. I mean, what you can do? Like, but this is, you know, it's been a frequent topic on all these food news podcasts. I mean, this is, you know, like the fifth one and it's just, you're going to have, you know, every city's got like eight to 10 restaurants. It seems like a week that are, that are closing. So another one, La Caridad 78, which is apparently a, a Chinese and Cuban hybrid restaurant that's been open for 52 years. They announced that they're closing uh, this week too, as well. Sarah Beth's, it's a 10-year-old brunch spot on the Upper East Side. Uh, I guess it was in the Hotel Wales, which is like a boutique hotel. The hotel closed, so they're closing too as well. So, I mean, just across the board, you could be in the game for a year, in the game for 50 years, 10 years, whatever. Um, you know, the margins are so small that, that people just can't, can't make it without any sort of income. And if people aren't going to be dining in and stuff for a while, like it's, you're going to have a lot of New York closures. I guess there's a new food hall in the works for where the Oculus is, which is right by kind of where the world trade center is in lower Manhattan. It's expected to open this fall and they have 13 vendors signed on. I, I really couldn't believe this story when I first read it because Food halls seem like counterintuitive. Food halls, you know, markets with a bunch of food stalls, that all seems to be kind of backwards thinking. And, and maybe these plans were already in place, but you can cancel them. Um, I don't know who's going to go to a food hall. I mean, you know, Ben and I talked about it too as well. Like food halls, they're just, they're not great. They're usually disappointing. You know, you try a bunch of stuff and you're like, yeah, it's okay. But like, I've never had anything out of a food hall that's been amazing. Um, yeah. And I just, I can't believe that somebody wants to try and open one when, you know, best case scenario, we're just getting over the pandemic, but like, I, don't, I just don't think people are going to be rushing to go to a new food hall, but that's just me. And then finally for New York, acclaimed New Jersey chef Zad Arifa, uh, he is opened Wicked Jane, which is a high-end fine dining restaurant on West 8th Street. Uh, his previous restaurants, Blue and Next Door, uh, both in New Jersey, they closed back in 2015. Um, he did have to change the, the concept a little bit, though. Originally, it was supposed to be a tasty menu, and he had to pivot it to a, a la carte menu because everybody's got to eat outside and nobody wants to be there for hours on end during a tasty menu. Uh, he's also had some supply chain issues with higher end ingredients that he's trying to get from Europe, like cheeses and wines and stuff like that. So, but it sounds like a pretty cool place. I mean, I added it to the list of places that I'd be interested in, in checking out uh, for whenever we get back to New York City, however many years that is. So, I mean, you're not seeing a whole lot of places open right now, especially like high end places. So it was a pretty interesting um, article. It was on. Uh, eater so you can check that out i think that actually just came out today but uh shifting over to chicago so let's see bars uh that don't serve food had to start closing today um, basically anything that's 
not serving food is prohibited from serving alcohol indoors starting today. Um, restaurants can serve alcohol indoors, but I guess the max capacity per table has been reduced from 10 to 6 as well. It's just a new ordinance to try and curb coronavirus cases, which according to the map I saw a couple hours ago is not really working in Illinois. Um, but I, I really don't know where it is working. Pretty much every state's like on the rise except for I think like 10 maybe Guthrie's Tavern which is near it's in Wrigleyville it's near where the Cubs play Wrigley Field Uh, that bar has closed after 34 years the owners came out said they didn't see a path to surviving the rest of the pandemic with restrictions on bars no fans being allowed at Wrigley for the baseball season and you know continuing rise in coronavirus cases all kind of played a factor in their decision so um, you can add that to the list of closed entities um, in Chicago and across the nation. Michelin starred Yugen will reopen. Uh, I guess they're so. This is the restaurant that took over the space um, from Chris Duffy when he shut down um, his restaurant Grace a couple years ago after a kind of dispute with the ownership over profit sharing and ownership uh, percentage of the restaurant and everything. So this place went in there um, once he closed and left and did a redesign, but they're going to um, reopen for the first time since the start of the pandemic. They're kind of switching up the concept, though. There's going to be a tiki-themed patio and a Japanese snack shop. Um, normally, it's one of the city's most expensive restaurants, but they're going to relaunch kind of in this format. Um, to try and just, you know, be a little bit more affordable for people and, and drum up some business too as well. I guess the snack shop uh, is going to be in kind of like the old bar lounge area and they're going to convert it and they're going to, they said create a patio space. So I'm assuming on the sidewalk out front or something like that, um, but kind of remains to be seen exactly how they uh, implement that part. Uh, Medi um, is going to be a new restaurant. It's actually going to open kind of by the end of the month or maybe even the beginning of August in Lincoln Park. Uh, co-owners Elias Union and Paul Aquas uh, are going to partner with George Rizzio and uh, Union, Elias Union's father um, too as well, and they're going to open the restaurant. Um, Hermes Union is going to be running the kitchen. Uh, basically, none of those names really mean anything to, to anybody essentially. But So this restaurant was started um, – back in like so they started a restaurant back in the 90s elias's parents uh, their natives of beirut they came to the u.s in 1979 um, they started this restaurant can zaman in the early 90s they had to close it in 2015 because of uh, issues with their lease they couldn't uh, you know agree to a new lease so um kind of bringing back that concept it's going to be like a authentic traditional if you went to the home of a Middle Eastern person for dinner, so it's going to be a big spread, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, Lebanese with Armenian and Greek components integrated in the cuisine as well. So it just sounded like an interesting restaurant, something that I'd be interested in trying. Um, so I thought just to, you know, it'd be good to highlight it. And it's also at a time where you really see a lot of the ethnic style restaurants where, you know, it's, Chinese cuisine or Japanese cuisine or something like that. Um, a lot of those seem to be kind of affected a lot by lack of business from coronavirus. So it was good to see, you know, something 
with a, a unique concept, unique cuisine that's going to be opening um, in Chicago. Shifting over to Texas. Uh, so as I mentioned, I think it was last week. So Don Bowie, he's the co-owner of like Taste Kitchen and Bar. And that was where they had the employee was doing like an Instagram post of all these places that had uh, employees test positive for coronavirus that wouldn't shut down. She said she was fired. He said he didn't fire. She was just basically off the rotation for two weeks. Uh, I forget her first name. Something bigger. Brandy Biggers, I think was her name. She was the server or whatever. So that guy, Don Bowie, um, you know, he's the one who's being sued. So he, I guess he's going to try and open a new restaurant. Um, I guess it's called Rare is going to be the name of it. But some other details about that lawsuit came out. So the other owner, Kevin Kelly, um, is alleging that he stole, Bowie stole more than 800 k in cash and company property. Um, I guess in the a lawsuit that was kind of made public, some of the documents, uh, internal partnership plan was for Kelly to run the business side, Bowie to run the day-to-day operational side. Uh, Kelly's claiming his he was supposed to be repaid his initial $220,000 investment before any profits were taken from the restaurant. And Bowie was getting paid a ten grand a month salary, basically, to manage the restaurant. Um, other allegations include improper cash withdrawals from the restaurant's bank account, stealing cash tips, taking food and alcohol for personal use, pocketing valet parking payments, putting his own family members on the payroll, taking out a unauthorized PPP loan without the consent of Kelly, and not paying over fifty grand in taxes. Uh, there is like a temporary restraining order on Bowie, so he cannot make any financial decisions on the restaurant's behalf until that hearing is heard. Um, I think the article said it was scheduled for July 20th, but then it got postponed. So just following up on that story, I've never been to Houston, would probably never go to this taste kitchen and bar place. It kind of sounds like a dumpster fire. And um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of put some more context into the story from the previous week. If anything, he looks really guilty because he's trying to open another restaurant and probably trying to put whatever money he has laying around in that so he can say that it's tied to the business. And that way, when the lawsuit doesn't go in his favor and he has to owe this other guy money, he's like, well, I don't have any money. It's all in this restaurant. And I open this restaurant and you can't have it. So that kind of seems like the game that he's trying to play here. Uh, I'm sure more will come out, though, and... As it does, if some new details, new juicy details come up, I'll uh, I'll report them here. But staying in Houston, Blackbird Izakaya, a Japanese restaurant serving uh, kind of creative Japanese cuisine. They closed after two years of uh, being open. Chef owner Billy Kim, I guess, posted a uh, announcement on YouTube. But he said like he tried pivoting to the takeout model, but that wasn't going to work for the long term survival of the restaurant. Like the way that it's set up people sitting at a bar top and there's an open kitchen that they can look into and, and watch the kitchen work. So, you know, he said the menu items too didn't translate to carry out either. And it's, it, there's just no, didn't see a path forward. So he had to shut it down. Um, another closure, a 13 year old Italian restaurant, Botticelli's, which is actually in Austin. Um, that has closed brothers, Andrew and Matt Cotta Kelly 
Uh, they didn't give a reason for the closure, but probably coronavirus related. The Texas Craft Brewers Guild estimates that one-third of the state's breweries will close this year due to declining sales and a lack of revenue stemming from coronavirus. Um, I think Texas is like number... I mean, I think Austin's like top five, at least, at craft breweries. I know Portland's got a big scene, San Diego... Denver's got a sizable scene. Um, we have one in Columbus. I mean, we have 50-some breweries, and we haven't really lost anybody yet. So we'll see. But, I mean, you know, depending, it, it just depends on what state you're in. And if you can sell, you know, alcohol directly out of your, out of your distillery and your brewery or, you know, if you're restricted by that or, you know, kind of what the rules and regulations are. If you serve food, like, then you have another avenue that you can kind of skate by on. So... It's just kind of a case-by-case basis, but it's more like a city-by-city basis uh, in terms of stuff going to survive. There hasn't been any reports on the Columbus one, but um, but yeah, I know Austin's like for sure a top 10, you know, I think top five uh, in terms of how many like independent breweries there are, you know, in the area. So kind of surprised to, to see that come out, that estimation that a third of the breweries are going to close. Uh, but in some good news, a new waterfront oyster bar, which actually sounds pretty interesting. It's called Pier 6. It's going to open later this summer. Uh, it's going to be in kind of like the Gavelston Bay area in this uh, kind of Houston suburb called San Leon. It's like 40 miles uh, south of Houston. Um, but it sounds like a pretty cool concept. So the chef is going to be Joe Cervantes, who was formerly executive chef at Brennan's, which is like a, a famous dining institution kind of type restaurant. Um, so it's actually owned by the family behind Prestige Oysters, which is one of the leading distributors of oysters in the Texas Gulf area. And they're going to basically have a whole bunch of different stuff they're eventually going to implement. So they want to do, you know, tied table dining experience so like you can order oysters and eat oysters but you know you be able to see like fishing boats operating too as well and, and bringing you know stuff in the daily catch in and whatnot um i guess they're they're hoping that they'll be able to control kind of the seafood so everybody you know who orders oysters or anything like that it will have been you know from that day uh, basically pulled from the water, you know, a few hours uh, before it kind of lands on the table. They want to add tableside oyster roasting, shucking classes, uh, even an oyster farm in the waters near the restaurant too as well, fishing tournaments, a whole bunch of stuff. So they're trying to do kind of all these different concepts eventually. But um, it sounds like a really cool, like, oyster bar. It's somewhere that I would definitely go in the Houston area. I added it to my list of places to kind of check out and um, even though Katie's not big on on oysters, but um, it sounds like a really cool concept. And based on the kind of the renderings and some of the photos, um, yeah, it's definitely somewhere that that I would check out um, too as well. I've never been to Houston. It is a place that I do want to want to visit. It's kind of been on the list. Um, there's a couple different restaurants that I want to visit there um, too as well. So we'll see what happens. Hopefully, uh, it's sooner than later. But you know, Houston's definitely on the list for a few different reasons. Um, switching over to the Vegas area. So the culinary union, I mentioned last week, they were doing that lawsuit or maybe it was a couple of weeks ago 
they actually dropped the lawsuit against the MGM and they've entered expedited arbitration. But the lawsuit against Caesars is still ongoing. Uh, the lawsuit was about like COVID-19 protections for employees, uh, anybody that would come in contact with another, you know, person inside the the casino or the hotel, whether it be, you know, maids or um, cocktail servers or, you know, any of that stuff. They already got protections for dealers, but they're trying to get protections for everybody else is essentially what that lawsuit was. Um Emeralds, uh, Legacy Stadium. It was a sports bar in the Palazzo. Um, that is closed. It will not reopen. It was basically like his version of a sports bar. They did like, uh, yes, um, specific dishes for whatever NFL teams were playing on Thursday and Sunday nights. Uh, it had over 100 screens. Replaced the 4040 Club back in 2009. And it had like sports betting too and, and everything like that. That is closed. I mean, not really a surprise. I mean, stuff, stuff closes, you know, 10 years, 10, 11 years is a pretty good run for any sort of concept in Las Vegas. I feel like if you make it like a decade there, that's appropriate. So, you know, who knows if that was going to originally close before that, um, with, you know, the downturn in sports and everything, but you know, uh, the Codfather, which is a like authentic uh, fish and chips restaurant that actually opened in Henderson this past week. So the guy is uh, the owner, Glenn Bramhall. He's actually from uh, Sheffield uh, over in the UK. Um, and yeah, he just wanted to open like a authentic fish and chips restaurant. And then he's working on like um, mushy peas, which is like a UK thing. Gonna have those on the menu too as well. It's in the Sunset Ridge Shopping Center next to Maui Exiles and Tiki Thai. I thought this was interesting just because one, big fan of fish and chips, never been to the UK, so I know that's kind of a big deal over there. And then I was thinking about it the other day too as well. There's not like a whole lot of great places to eat in Las Vegas. Um you know, we ate at a bunch of places on the strip when we were out there in January, and, and most of them were okay. I mean, like Flock and Fowl was really good. You know, La Strega, which is out kind of in the suburbs, that was pretty good too. So there's something like the Momofuku restaurant um, in the Cosmopolitan. That was really good. But we ate at like, you know, Guy Savoy and, and Joel Rubichon's, and those those are just kind of okay. Um, I know there's a couple. There's that one Thai restaurant that's um, – Oh, Lotus of Siam, I think is the name. And that like would have ate there, but didn't realize that we needed a reservation until it was too late. I know that's a pretty famous um, kind of place to go eat when you're in Vegas. It's one of the, the best restaurants. It's usually nominated for James Beard Award pretty frequently. And then Bourdain, I mean, when he went to Vegas, which we'll get to on the uh, Parts Now Known podcast, um, he ate there too as well. So, and we'll be, we'll be kind of covering that once we get to that episode. I can't remember. I feel like that's in like season two. So it'll probably be a couple months, but, uh, and the last bit of news kind of in the Vegas area, um, this just sounded interesting to me. So serial killers kitchen. Um, I guess it was kind of like a pop-up restaurant. And, well, more like a pop-up cafe. Um, they're going to actually have a standalone location and also expand to three other locations around the area. So 
They're going to, the first one's going to be in Centennial, and then they're going to put one in North Vegas, Spring Valley, and Henderson. It's basically like a, it's similar to that one that I mentioned um, over in London that closed. It's basically like they have like over 100 cereals from around the world. And they encourage people, you know, if you get ice cream to, you know, get cereal and put it on top and blah, 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 blah. But I just, it'd just be kind of cool to see, like, what does 100 cereals, like, look like? And, like, yeah, you can think of all the ones that you see in the grocery aisle, but, like, what are the obscure ones that they have, too, as well? Like, that would be kind of interesting to see, at least for me. So that's the only reason why I included it here. Um, moving over to kind of Minnesota. So just a couple closures there. Uh, James Beard award winning, winning chef, also Minnesota native Gavin Kaysen. Uh, he closed his French restaurant Belcor. Uh, that's over in Wyzata basically because of the pandemic. He is also the chef of uh, spoon and stable, which is a place that I really want to go. And, uh, he has a third restaurant Demi. So both those restaurants are still going to be open. Um, Kaysen's was the second one that he opened, but it was just too dependent on seasonal success since it's on the lake and everything. Um, he like opened for like, I think two days at the end of June. And then, uh, there was a positive COVID-19 test from a team member. So he had to close back down again and it hasn't reopened since. And I, it just basically it's past the point in the season where they're going to have any significant revenue too as well. Um, and looking at next year, like, I mean, can you make it a year with basically out no revenue from now, even though you've already been operating for a half a year out of that restaurant with no revenue? No. So, I mean, that's, that's why it closed essentially. So, um, but spoon stable still around. That's his big one. That's the one that he won the James Beard awards for. Um, it's like one of the best restaurants in Minneapolis area that you can go to apparently. So excited to go try that whenever travel is able to happen again. Uh, Popo Vu, which was apparently Eater's 2018 Chef of the Year, uh, Jose Alcron's, basically an elevated Mexican restaurant. He announced that that will not reopen uh, even after the pandemic uh, resolves itself. It started out as a pop-up inside the kitchen of another restaurant where Jose was working at the time, and then um, it became kind of its own high-end location. And next door, uh, he has this place called Centro, which is just a casual taco concept. That's going to still be open. That's been open for takeout and delivery, so he's just going to operate that. Um, but he shut down kind of the elevated uh, restaurant, the elevated Mexican restaurant. So, But it, it was known for carrying, like, Mexican wines and stuff too as well. So, um, you know, kind of a shame. It sounds it sounded like a cool place uh, that I didn't know about and unfortunately learning about some of these cool places that'd be like, Oh yeah, I'd like to eat there. Oh, I can't. It's closing forever. So over in DC. So it came out a list of like uh, DC area restaurants that were either closed or announcing their closures by the end of the month due to coronavirus. Some of them we already mentioned uh, on this pod, but additional ones, and most of these I've never heard of, but I'll just run through them real quick. Uh, Maddie's Tap Room, which was open for nine years. Firehook Bakery. B2, which was open for eight years. Grill at Flower Hill, which we previously mentioned. Bistro Boheme. Um, Magnolia Kitchen and Bar. Mason Dixie Biscuit Co. They all have basically said, like, we're closing or going to be closing by the end of the month. And then Sushi Taro, which 
was a Michelin starred sushi restaurant in DC. I have a feeling they're going to lose that star uh, whenever the awards come out this fall for DC. They have reopened for takeout. Takeout is basically what they pivoted to. Um, They're not going to be doing in-restaurant dining anymore. Their new permanent focus is takeout. So they closed down for like two months so they could reorganize and redesign, um, which sucks. I've never been there. It's a Michelin starter sushi place, so it was definitely on my list of places to go. But um, I don't know. Maybe that's like if you're in D.C., you just order takeout from your hotel one night and just say F it. That's probably what I'll do. <laughs> be like, you go, you eat dinner somewhere, and if you're still hungry, just be like, yeah, I'm going to order some sushi takeout. Whatever. It's, who cares? Uh, it looks really good. You know, just a shame never got there. Um, was definitely on my list of places to go to when going back to D.C. or if I had to go there for, you know, another job fair or something, I was going to try and hit it up. But, um, yeah, I'll just have to do some takeout, I guess, from there whenever I find myself back in the area. God, I miss sushi. I really want sushi. It's just like... You just can't find it here. It sucks. You just don't have it in Columbus. Uh, Moving over to Miami. So the Miami-Dade County Commission uh, approved $35 million in a relief program for the restaurant industry. So the $35 million is from the CARES Act, which is what the Congress passed um, back in, like, March, April. Um, They passed the CARES Act, then they passed, like, the HEROES Act. But I don't think the HEROES Act made it all the way through. And now they're working on a third thing a new stimulus package basically. So the CARES Act was the first one that went all the way through. And the uh, the money was basically, you know, given to the county from the federal government for, you know, emergency aid. Uh, so 30 million is going to funding Miami-Dade County Hospitality Industry Grant Program. Um, basically they'll offer grants up to 25,000 per restaurant. The other five is going to go to the South Beach Wine and Food Festival and the uh, Florida International University Chaplain School Industry Relief Fund. And that program will give up to $500 to furloughed and laid off employees of independently owned restaurants, hotel restaurants, bars, and caterer or catering companies. Uh, The grant program is intended for restaurants employing no more than 50 people with an annual revenue below 10 million. If there's funds still remaining um, after all those that qualify got some money, they'll expand um, the requirements and it'll be any restaurant with 75 employees or less and annual revenue that does not exceed 15 million. Single establish, they're looking for basically like single establishments. Uh, you know, anybody who's just owns like one restaurant, they're going to get priority on their application. Money is allowed to be used for hundred percent of PPE cost, 80% of rent and mortgage and 50% of expenses like utilities, licensing, insurance, things like that. Uh, food trucks, nightclubs, bars, franchise restaurants, restaurants owned by a hotel, home-based businesses and chain restaurants do not qualify. So they cannot apply for any of that money. Uh, Moving over to Atlanta. So Michael Render and uh, Clifford Harris, uh, basically Killer Mike and T.I., two rappers from the the city, uh, they're relaunching Bankhead Seafood. It was a legendary Atlanta restaurant serving fried fish. They bought the restaurant and the name to it in 2018 after owner and founder Helen Harden closed it. She was running it for like 50 years, but 
it just became too much for her to handle on her own. So the two rappers uh, kind of joined forces, uh, bought the business, bought the names, the rights to it. And they basically look at it as a reinvestment in the community they both grew up in. And so it's starting out with a food truck. That food truck's already up and running, and they're working on construction of a 130-seat, two-story restaurant, which is over off of a Donald Lee Hollowell uh, Parkway, I guess. And that should be open next year in the spring of 2021. They haven't had any delays or anything from coronavirus. So that's kind of a cool story. Um, you know, just a couple guys, you know, made it big in the music industry and kind of giving back to the community. Um, I think their wives are going to kind of run it um, too as well from what the article said. So it'll be like a female run business. I mean, you know, and, and kind of a family owned business too as well. And they'll have some, you know, celebrity profile too as well. So they can drum up some business too. And, and I think it's pretty cool um, that they're doing that. So uh, over in Massachusetts, uh, I guess restaurants have begun to reclose due to influx of out-of-state visitors from hotspots, coronavirus hotspots to the area. So um, since they have low amount of cases in the state, I guess people are kind of getting out of their state and going there because um, stuff's opening back up. So a lot of places are starting to just reclose because they're like, there's too many random people here that don't live in the state that most likely you know, are from hotspots that could very well have it. So like, uh, I guess the Sam Adams tap room, they have been open for like about a month and they had outdoor seating and everything, but they went back to just doing contactless pickup of beer and merchandise. And they're like, we're not messing with this right now. So that's kind of another thing that you're seeing is where, you know, people are kind of leaving States with hotspots and going to, states that kind of got passed through it and like new york would have this problem too if they opened up indoor dining because once you get all those restaurants open a lot of people would be like oh well we can go to new york you know there's stuff to do there everything's open they don't really have any cases but then you get too many people going in there at once and it's like well then then you have new exposures new cases so um that's kind of the flip side of the coin of of doing it right the first time and and everything and, and reopening. Um, over in Philly, uh, this uh, acclaimed vegan bar uh, called V Street, they announced that they're closing, not reopening. Uh, over in Raleigh, uh, Top Chef alum Katsuji Tanabe, he is um, he's like the Latino guy. He was on two seasons. I think he was on the Boston season, and then I don't remember the other one. But he would constantly get into like little bickering arguments um, with people. Um, he would, oh, who's the guy out of Texas at Knife, the the owner chef of Knife. Um, he worked with Bourdain. God, I can't remember his name. But yeah, they would always kind of get in a, in a back and forth. But um, Katsuji's Re Raleigh restaurant, High Horse, is closed. It was only open since November 2019, but closed in March because of coronavirus. Couldn't pivot to the takeout model when things shut down, and the business partner said he didn't want to attempt uh, to reopen the restaurant uh, in the future. I guess it was profitable, though, during the first few months um, that it was open. So I know he, Katsuji there, was talking about opening multiple restaurants in the area. I don't know if he's still going to do that or if he's just going to go. He had a restaurant, like, out in L.A., I think, originally. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I guess more on that sometime in the future. Um, 
over in Honolulu, Uncle's Fish Market, which is a 14-year-old restaurant known for its fresh fish. That is closed uh, due to the pandemic. I actually read an interesting article about just kind of Hawaii because that was kind of where we were hoping to go on like a vacation if possible. But they never they postponed reopening visitation um, outside of kind of doing the 14-day quarantine. Basically, you could go get a test and then um, coronavirus test within three days of your flight and you'd be good and you wouldn't have to quarantine for two weeks once you land in the state. They pushed that back, though. That was supposed to be August 1st. They pushed it back, I think, uh, right now, the new target's September. So I don't know. But they have, like, a Category 4 hurricane like that's headed right for them. Hurricane Douglas, I guess. So kind of a blessing that we're not there because we'd be getting just smoked by a hurricane probably by the time we got there um, if everything went kind of according to plan, lining up uh, a vacation for ourselves. But... And then also the last bit of news, national news, Nashville Mayor John Cooper is uh, forcing all the restaurants, bars, and businesses that serve alcohol to close at 10 p.m. nightly through the end of the month, probably longer, in an effort to curb coronavirus spreading. Um, Takeout and delivery are not affected. Basically, he did this in response to the photos and videos that were going around online kind of over last weekend. Um it was basically a bunch of people on Broadway, which is where all the bars and and everything are not wearing masks, not social distancing, like piled together on sidewalks and outside of different bars and stuff like that. So I guess there's a public mask order for Nashville, but they've only issued warnings, no citations. And yeah, it sucks because like Nashville's, you know, drivable from Columbus. So, you know, you could get down there for a weekend, but not going to go if it's just a giant shit show of people just not doing anything like not not even just like no mask but like no social distancing just packing in bars and stuff like that not that like not that i would spend too much time on broadway anyways it's just not really my scene um but you know mostly because they had some good restaurants that had reopened so it was like oh you go down there and you know hotel or Airbnb would be slightly cheaper than it normally is because they, you know, they're trying to drum up business and stuff. Um, and you could drive down there and you know, long weekend it or, or whatever, but, uh, not so much now with the, the rise in cases and everything that they have going on down there. So that's it. Uh, that's it for national news. Um, moving on to Ohio. So, uh, Ohio Burger Week is scheduled for August 17th through 23rd. Basically, that's like Columbus, Cincinnati, Cleveland. They all participate. It's it's usually restaurants that put a like a specialty burger on their menu, and it's like a five, like it's like a five dollar burger or something like that. Um, and then I think like I think Cleveland has almost like a burger kind of checklist thing and if you eat at so many places you can you know redeem it for like a i don't know, like a keychain or something um i guess it's the sixth year that uh, cincinnati's doing it uh oh columbus here has done it i mean we've done it for a while burger week um so but that's still on uh i know somebody was doing restaurant week coming up i think it might have been cincinnati's is coming up um too i haven't heard anything about columbus because usually columbus has one in july and one in january and i haven't really seen anything 
but I know Cincinnati's still doing theirs. There's just a lot of places are going to have takeout for that. So, uh, shifting kind of to the Cleveland area. So Betts restaurant will open Thursday, August 9th. Uh, that was formally announced. That's, uh, the restaurant in the Kimpton Schofield hotel in downtown. Uh, it was Parker's and then they closed at the start of coronavirus and they did a renovation and a rebranding. And so now it's called Betts and it will open in August. So just another restaurant that's going to open up, um, Town Hall uh, in Cleveland. We have one in Columbus, but it's barely, it opened like, I swear, like two weeks before the coronavirus hit. Um, they're full of all sorts of con- controversy. I encourage you, if you're really interested, um, most people probably already know who are in Cleveland, but if not, if you haven't seen it on the news, I'm sure it's made the news or something, but um, do some research on your own. But basically, uh, it's this kind of popular restaurant bar that's owned by um oh george something i can't remember the guy's name but he's kind of a tool so like the waitresses are hired but they're hired as models um so they can control like their weight and like they'll fire people if they if they gain too much weight or like their you know their makeup's not done right um they had a controversy earlier when things first started opening up a, a couple months ago, um, they were one of the places in Cleveland that like first opened and like wasn't enforcing social distancing and made the news. And then Cleveland Scene published an article, and then town hall owner and general manager were like trying to sue Cleveland Scene, and actually that lawsuit kind of came out. So uh, town hall agreed to like basically settle and like pay for the lawyer fees and everything for Cleveland scene. But then they were delaying doing that payment and kept putting it off, putting it off. So Cleveland scene is um, basically not only put it out there in the media, but is also pushing forward with like uh, a judge's like determination, like they need to pay up now, like ASAP kind of thing. So good for them um, because the town hall is just, sounds like just the world's shittiest establishment, but I guess they're having employees test positive and this was all going on like, uh, anonymously kind of on Instagram. So, but employees were testing positive, but they never closed. Um, I guess there was an investigation from the city of Cleveland to make sure that they were following the sanitation ordinance. But I guess there was a little bit more to that investigation too, as well. There's rumors of, you know, people being working sick, um, being sent home, but given, you know, different reasons to the table that they were waiting on. So like the table could have possibly contracted coronavirus from the server. Um, the server was working because she was afraid she was going to get fired and wouldn't be able to get on unemployment. And then there's, you know, there was talk of people being sick and like throwing up in the bathroom and these are employees and everything, but she wasn't allowed to go home for a shift and like all this stuff. So look, it's a shitty place. It's, run by a shithead don't go there we have one in columbus i'll never go there um hopefully that they're just burning through cash and are hopefully their landlord is forcing them to pay their rent because i think it's in the the bottom of like the moxie hotel or something which apparently i've never stayed in a moxie hotel but apparently that's like a hotel made of like ikea furniture like it's a downgrade from an a-loft apparently um so it sounds like another kind of shitty situation but 
And the last story out of Cleveland, Forest City Brewing has uh, closed temporarily. They're only going to do to-go growler sales. I guess they just had too many customers that just weren't following guidelines, wearing masks, social distancing, and and all that stuff. Um, so they just said, F it. We're just going to shut it down. You can come buy our beer, but our tap room's not open <laughs> and until further notice. So good on them. I mean, you know, keeping their employees safe and everything. If people aren't even going to follow basic rules, then good on them for not putting the the money over the employees there i've never been to forest city brewing um i know they're on the ale trail up there in cleveland which has been extended through the end of the year for people to complete their passport um you know if you're still trying to do that i I don't know how many breweries and stuff are open up in the area though moving down to cincinnati um graders released their second limited edition flavor on monday it's a strawberry sorbet made with quote unquote, special strawberries from the Pacific Northwest. I'm not sure what that is. I don't know. Maybe it's more flavorful or something like that. I'm not exactly sure, but that came out. Uh, I think they have two more limited edition flavors coming out um, too as well. I think the last one's in, I think, yeah, the last one's in August. So there's two more coming out. Um, I haven't had any of them, but I just think it's a cool concept that they do. So whatever, figure I'd mention it. Uh, Ryan guys, brewery is leading a statewide collaboration of breweries to increase voter registration and election participation in Ohio. So I guess they've gotten like 40 other breweries to sign on or participate and they designed a label and it basically says every vote counts. And so anybody that's participating gets access to, you know, the label that they can use. Um, And I guess they even made like the label art available for out of state breweries too, as well, if they want to participate, it's just, it's just them. They put it on whatever beer they want. Like there's, it's not a special beer or anything. It's just a label. Um, they can use whatever beer they want for it, but it's just to help, you know, turn out, um, turn out the vote kind of thing. So pretty cool, um, initiative that they're doing, just getting people to vote. They're not telling people which way to vote or anything like that. So thought that was worth mentioning. Um, what else? So I guess, through some study or something like that, I'm not sure exactly how they came to this conclusion, but no COVID-19 cases have been linked to Cincinnati restaurants. And basically there was a whole article, like the owners are desperate for, for people to start coming back in and, and they want people to know that they're safe if they want to dine in and everything like that. Um, I guess the next few weeks are going to be make or break for a lot of places. They were talking to, they interviewed specifically uh, Jose Salazar, who's the chef over at Mita's. Uh, which has been a James Beard nominated uh, restaurant handful of times in the past. And he said he might have to close temporarily uh, if things don't pick back up soon. Just, you know, and he's, I follow them on Instagram and they pretty much, he's got a post out there like every day, like trying to get people to come in, um, you know, and, and fill the seats that they have. I mean, they socially distance everything six feet out and, and all that stuff. I mean, you know, I might go down there, you know, to eat it is a good restaurant um, that I thoroughly enjoyed my first experience. Still working on finishing up the page for it um, on the website, on the Spoon Mob website. But yeah, if you're in the Cincinnati area, I mean, they're open. They're doing everything right. They're doing everything safe. So it's safe to eat there. And um, yeah, go support, you know, those restaurants if you're looking for, for a good place to eat. There's a handful of them. I mean, Boca is not open for dine-in, I don't believe, but the sister restaurant in the basement, Soto is, um, Mita's is open. 
Please hasn't reopened yet. Um, who else is open down there? Uh, and there's like a handful of new ones that open too as well. So I'm trying to think of good ones off the top of my head, but struggling here. So, you know, I think Palm, uh, is it Palm Orchids at the court? I think that's open too as well. But Cincinnati Magazine posted a uh, slideshow uh, to this week, basically encompassing all the recent restaurant closures um, from the past, you know, couple weeks. So it also had a few that were like before coronavirus. So it was just from the year, basically. Um, Satair, OTR, and Restaurant L were the two high-profile ones. They're usually on the, the magazine's annual like ten best restaurants list. But there was like Harvest Pizzeria, Mitchell's Fish Market, uh, the Bravo, obviously, which we mentioned earlier. Um, those have all closed. They all have Columbus locations too as well. I don't know if our Mitchell's Fish Market, we only have one left, and it's off of, uh, it's over kind of in Grandview. And I, I mean, it's closed. I don't know if it's going to reopen or if it's permanently closed though. So that'll be kind of interesting to see because like one, like, one or two buildings down, there was um, like Pizza Cuccinova, Potbelly, Sandwiches, or something. There's like three, four things in kind of this one building, and all those things have closed. So it'll be interesting to see if Mitchell's Fish Market is open or not um, when the time comes. Because that is not, despite the name, that's not owned by Cameron Mitchell. That's actually owned by uh, the parent company for like Ruth Chris Steakhouse. They bought all the Mitchell fish markets and then also the Mitchell steakhouses from him years ago. Um, he sold him those concepts. Catch a fire pizza, uh, opened a brick and mortar location in downtown blue ash near uh, Cincinnati there. I guess that started out as a food truck in 2013 by uh, husband, wife duo, Jeff and Melissa Ledford. And then they moved into a craft brewery, uh, mad tree, which if you're from the area, you've definitely heard of, um, at least from the state anyways, you've definitely heard of. And uh, that was actually over in Oakley's uh, in 2015. Basically, it's uh, wood-fired Neapolitan-style pizzas, doing carry-out and delivery. They're actually going to do dine-in too as well. And they said they have an official grand opening uh, later on um, sometime in the year when coronavirus permits. So check them out, new pizza shop. There's another new pizzeria too, Goodfellas Pizzeria. They opened their third Cincinnati location this past week uh, in Pleasant Ridge. Um, they have another location in the OTR and then also in Main Strace. Um, the only difference really is the new location has a uh, lounge called Wise Guys uh, upstairs, I guess it specializes in cocktails and bourbon and stuff. But they're basically a New York style pizza, like 22 inch, you know, New York style. So yeah, if you're looking for pizza in, in the Cincinnati area, you got two new ones, uh, two new locations to check out. So both sound pretty good. Um, if I lived in the area and I'd probably try both of them, uh, Braxton brewing, which is actually one of my favorite breweries from the area. They usually do a lot of collaborations with like graders and they did like a key lime pie beer. They've, I know they've done like a, a pumpkin pie beer, um, they've done a handful, and they're always really good. Um, they have agreed to take over the Three Points Urban Brewery Tap Room in Pendleton. So the company that owns Three Points, uh, it's called Hickory Wald. 
they're going to shift their focus to their restaurant, Nation Kitchen and Bar. So they're looking to open a second concept, second restaurant of that. Braxton, which is from Northern Kentucky, uh, they're going to reopen the tap room later this year. They're going to do some renovations and, and some updates. I guess they're actually the fa- the fourth fastest growing uh, brewery in kind of the, the region in 2019, according to the Brewers Association. What that region is, if they're talking just Midwest, uh, would be my guess. Um, but it didn't specify if they're talking like Midwest or if they're just talking like the Ohio, Kentucky region, Ohio Valley region. Like, so I'm not exactly sure, but they're rapidly growing. Um, I like their beer. I think their beer is really good. So, um, and the final kind of story for Cincinnati, uh, Anthony Sitek, he's the chef and co-owner of Crown Republic Gastro Pub. And basically him and the rest of the Crown ownership team, they have reopened the sister restaurant, Lasanti, which is a boutique steakhouse. It's inside um, the old Anchor OTR space uh, over by uh, Washington Park there. Um, it's more upscale. It's friendly and informal. It's, I guess it's kind of like got a special occasion atmosphere, but um, it's kind of like a date night spot. So steaks are cut to order. Scraps are used to make burgers. Um, they originally opened and reviewed, uh, got reviewed in February, like just before coronavirus happened, and then they had to shut down. So they've they've reopened. So um, you can go get food there. It's on. I added it to my list. Um, the steak, the Lasanti Steakhouse, looks pretty good. Crown Republic is also on my list too, as well. Places to. Um, to check out in Cincinnati, but, um, yeah, definitely check that place out. So mostly good news coming out of Cincinnati this week, um, which is kind of a welcome site, but moving up to Columbus here, um, just a couple things here. There's not too, too much. So according to the tourism experts, Columbus lost about 47,000 leisure and hospitality jobs due to the coronavirus pandemic since the start of it, I guess. And then about 200 million in direct spending from visitors due to you know cancellation of conventions and events that were scheduled in the first half of the year. So that came out, fun numbers there. Um, Jenny's uh, announced that they will not be reopening their Powell location, uh, at least where it is now, the lease for the space ended. So they're looking for a new location in the area um, to reopen, but that's going to be a little bit ways off. They did come out with their like orange, orange sickle flavor. I don't, part of their like fair flavor thing since they canceled the, the Ohio state fair this year. Um, I haven't tried it. I tried the watermelon one that they came out with last week. I mean, it does taste like watermelon taffy. It's a little bit, a little bit more tart though. Um, it's fine. I, I don't think I would order it again. It's worth trying, but there's just other flavors that they have that are way better that I would rather have versus the watermelon taffy flavor. So, um, but yeah, I'd, I'd encourage you to, you know, if there's a scoop shop near you, get a scoop of it, whatever. Um, but yeah, or you can check out the review on the Spoon Mob website there too as well. Uh, the Sycamore, which I mentioned previously, that was on the market. Uh, Chris Crater's rest, uh, Grow Restaurant Group 
Um, it was one of the restaurants that he was trying to sell as kind of like a turnkey operation. I did not think that he was going to find a buyer for it, but he did. Uh, there's no word on who those buyers are or the sale price. It was on the market for 350 grand. I doubt he got that, but I mean, he was able to sell it and I was pretty shocked. So we'll see what happens with the Sycamore and its new owners and, and what they decide to do. I hope they decide to make it better. Um, we went there once. I think we probably had four dishes. Only one of them was good, and it was poutine. Um, the service was like so-so. Um, it's really dimly lit. But the, fo- the food was just okay. It wasn't anything special. Um, so I hope they make it better. That'd be cool if like you know we had a spot that we could walk to in German Village that was... That was worth going to again. Um, what else? Columbus. Market Italian Village, temporary closed uh, last week. They didn't really cite a reason. I'm assuming it's just due to rising coronavirus cases in the city and and wanting to keep all their employees safe. Um, so I don't know when they were. They were only open Fridays and Saturdays for dinner, Sunday for brunch, and then they had like the market... Um, they call it the bottle shop, but you come in and buy wine, beer, whatever from like three to five. And then from like five to 10, the restaurant was open, something like that. So they reduced their hours. Um, we were able to get over there once. And I think we got to go food once too from them as well, since they reopened. Um, the to go food was okay. Um, it just, it just doesn't really translate. It's not the same. And then when we ate there, it's up on the, the Market Italian Village page on the website, so you can see it on Spoon Mob. It's under the Columbus Restaurants heading. But we got, uh, I think we got like duck duck wings and like a hummus. Um, that wa- that dish was not particularly good. There was just like no flavor to it. We got the gnocchi, and that was good, um, as usual. And then we got a third thing. I don't remember what it was trying to think off the top of my head without looking it up, but I don't know. We got three dishes. Two of them are good. The one was kind of a miss, um, which is rare usually for them. But, um, but yeah, so I I don't think they're closing permanently. I think they're just kind of waiting out the the rising cases. Um, Yellow brick pizza is closing their King Ave location and they're gonna move all their staff over to the Franklinton location, which is gonna be opening up this fall over at uh, the River and Rich apartment complex there. Um, I guess kinda, it sounds like the the King Ave location, their lease um, was coming up. And so they're just gonna move into a new facility rather than have three locations. I guess it just makes you know more sense for them. They still have their original location over in Old Town East that is open to as well. Uh, Matt the Millers in Grandview is exploring relocation as well due to lack of parking and space for an outdoor patio uh, for customers. So it's just they think that they're going to need those things and the location that they're in doesn't have that. There's probably also some rent issues too as well because that's right around where like Mitchell's Fish Market is and, and those three other um, businesses, three, four other businesses that closed in that one building that I mentioned, um, a little bit ago. So I, I don't really have an issue with Matt, the Millers. Um, it's okay. 
nothing special, but uh, I know they're having problems with their one location in Cincinnati that's in the hotel um, due to an unpaid lease that they were getting sued for too, and they were trying to leave. So they they sound like they might be in a little bit of a trouble um, financially, if I had to guess. But I don't know the ownership structure of that restaurant. Like if it if they're each location is owned by a different group, or if there's multiple locations by the same group, or what. So. Um, just two more things. So the keep, which is over in the Levesque tower, they have reopened. Uh, they have a new executive chef. It's actually a Columbus woman name of Courtney Nielsen. Um, the previous executive chef, he is up at, um, the Royce, which is that restaurant that opened in Polaris. Um, it's a black owned restaurant by that. Uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's been in the restaurant industry for years uh and it took over the cantina laredo space too as well so it's a pretty big restaurant space actually up there but so the keeps back open i've only ever been to the keep once i think i don't i mean we ordered off like the bar i think we just did it wrong i've heard good things about it but like the one time that we went we ordered off the bar menu it was pretty empty in there it just i i think we should have just gone to the restaurant because they have like kind of like a open it's not really an open kitchen but it's like a square counter um you know and that's kind of the the actual dining room and we were just at the bar area so i i I just think we ordered the wrong stuff i'd be open to giving it another try especially with a new executive chef um and see what they're what they're all about over there um i know they have like a solid they have like a solid like cocktail list, like premium whiskey and and stuff like that too as well. So it's a good spot to get a drink um, for certain. Food, I don't know. I'll let you know whenever we uh, we make it back there. And finally, um, Ray Ray's. So they are actually going to be getting their bread from uh, Majita Breads and uh, Matt Swint, who runs that uh, business. So they're going to be making all of Ray Ray's bread moving forward. So the sandwich rolls are basically going to change from sub style to like a traditional shape. Um, they said in an Instagram post, you know, won't affect the amount of meat and fixings and stuff that they throw on there and their sandwiches, but uh, it'll be a different look. Um, and I think they said it'll improve the the quality of the the product and everything too as well. So that's it for food news. Uh, still pushing like the two hour mark. Um, yeah, I think going forward, you know, if, if these start getting too long again, what I'll do is I'll split off the Ohio part probably to its own podcast. And that'll probably put it at about like a 30 minute mark. Um, if need be, I know the one last week ran pretty long and there were, a couple of potential complications with getting that uploaded, but I was able to to do it. But pretty much the three hour mark on a podcast is where we're pushing the limit um, of what we can effectively upload. So the quality is still good um, for the episode for people listening. So we're at the, like the two hour mark here, um, which is pretty good. Um, I think you know, one thing I'm thinking in terms of format change a little bit for food news is maybe just running off a list of the restaurants that closed. Um, 
and not really providing too much of a backstory unless it's worthy and just running off, you know, this place closed in Massachusetts, this place closed in Minneapolis, this place closed in Chicago. And I think that'll help shorten it too as well. Um, but yeah, I definitely want to, you know, there are a lot of places that are closing. I try and highlight the ones that have been around for like a long time. And then also, you know, the ones that are, have some name recognition or, or either doing a concept that's innovative or, or something like that, you know, not just like some piddly old steakhouse that closed. Um, and I try and touch on, you know, kind of the big conglomerate stuff too, as well at the top. So, um, just going to kind of tighten it up a little bit, I think over the next couple of weeks, just in an effort to, you know, I think I'd really like these to be about 90 minutes, about an hour and a half. The first hour, kind of the, the national news, like the national news and some of the global stuff. And then like the last half hour for Ohio is really what I'd like it to be. So I'm going to try and tighten it up a little bit too, as well. Like I said, um, that's just kind of just thinking out loud based on how I've seen the length grow in these podcasts over the last few weeks that I've done them. Um, they seem to be getting longer and longer except for this one, which, which definitely cut it down by 45 minutes this week. And some of it depends on just kind of the news story. Like last week was a lot of people in the restaurant industry being shitheads. And there's not, you, you have to give the backstory and the context as to why that's important to know. Um, so like last week, like, it's not too much that I could have really shortened up. There's just a lot of lengthy stories about just terrible work conditions and restaurant owners and chefs being shitheads. So, um, but that's kind of the plan going forward. Obviously still have the restaurant reviews, uh, coming out. So next week on Monday is, uh, Ushabu two, uh, Ushabu part two. So we went up to, Shabu last weekend um, had the 13 course Kaiseki tasting menu. Wanted to do that before it closed and changed formats. Um, it was fantastic, as expected. Well worth the drive. Um, I get into it on the on the podcast, but that'll be dropping Monday. And then um, on Wednesday will be parts now known. Uh, that will be the third episode of parts unknown it's going to be on columbia which is actually uh i'll just give a spoiler now it's my favorite episode of the three thus far it's a really good episode and um yeah i mean we get into it on the podcast about uh, a lot of things with that episode that we liked and everything so check that out too as well um i have you know redid the website a little bit took out some pages on some restaurants that I've been to that were like award-winning, but I just, I just wasn't wowed by them. I'm going to still do a podcast on those, but there might be a few less pages um, when you're on the website. But um, yeah. And then there's some restaurants that we're going to do that we went to that are supposed to be, you know, really great high profile restaurants and the experience just wasn't great. So I'm going to do a podcast on those. I'm just trying to figure out how I want to incorporate that into kind of the three that we're already doing. Um, I don't know if that's something that, you know, eventually makes its way to Patreon, you know, some people that like 
you know, these podcasts and kind of this format and style, if they want to hear more, you know, they have to go there. Um, I'm just, I'm not really sure. I'm just kind of thinking out loud and and thinking what I'm going to do for that, but those will be coming too, as well as well, a lot more restaurant reviews. I think there's about 10, 10 pages. I still got to finish on the website. Um, for some restaurants, that's all that's really left. Just uh, finished up the Anchorage page last night, so that's live. Probably be an Instagram post going out um, in the morning for that, just because that's um, that's done and that's a vegetable forward restaurant down in Greenville that I went to with Ben when I went down and visited him before he moved back up here. And I'm gonna have Ben on too as well um, sometime in the future because he's been there multiple times to kind of talk about his experience too as well. So, um, yeah. And that's, uh, that's kind of it for, you know, spoon mob this week. Um, check out the website, you know, the anchorage is new, uh, Fox in the snow is a new page in Columbus that went up, I think, uh, last weekend. Maybe I got that up there. Uh, check out the wine section too. Dominus estate and Opus one, um, got breakdowns of both those wines too as well. Dominus actually just released their 2017 um, edition. So that uh, haven't drank that yet, but we'll uh, be procuring that here in the near future. And um, yeah, just keep an eye out for additional changes. Going to start putting up just uh, on Instagram some just cool photos that I've taken uh, over over the past couple of years and not necessarily all just food, but, um, you know, different, uh, landmarks or just different cool photos that I've taken in travels and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, rate review, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from all the podcasts are available on the YouTube channel as well. And on the website. Um, so if it's a restaurant review, you can find it either on the spoon mob pod page on the website or, in that actual restaurants page on the website too it's embedded in there so you can play it straight from the website um if you want to as well and then um, check out the parts now known page we've done two episodes third one coming up here as i mentioned give us a follow on instagram spoon mob on instagram um you know we're on facebook and twitter too as well but uh really use the, the instagram account the most so give us a follow there and uh, help spread the word. Appreciate everybody listening so far. We're up to um, like a dozen listeners or so. So we're slowly growing it. And um, appreciate everybody who's subscribed and, and listening to the podcast. I think the so far the Myanmar um, episode is definitely the most popular, which is good. Uh, I was worried that people you know might not exactly like that concept or, or something like that, but um, that seems to be the most popular. And I know the restaurant reviews are going to be hit or miss here because it's either restaurants that you can't get to or, you know, with everything being closed, it's kind of hard to, to really get people excited about restaurants. I feel like right now, but still want to put those out just so that way, you know, when things do kind of ease up, you know, you can keep an eye out for those places reopening and go experience them yourself. Cause they are places that, that are worthy of experiencing They're They're fantastic restaurants. Um, and that's kind of what's on the website now is just places that I would either go to again myself or I would highly recommend if, if somebody was headed to that city or destination or what have you. So 
check out all that stuff. Appreciate everybody. Um, Have a good weekend. Stay safe. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next week.